0: All right, this is episode 1A of season 2. I got deep into the last one and realized it's probably too long to put in one episode. And my wife's always telling me, hey, you've got good things to say, but you just need to shorten it up a little bit. <laughs> so in case she's listening, shout out to her. But also, hopefully this helps the rest of us. Now, here's the thing. you got to remember where we left off. I was talking last time about Karl Marx's unbelievably beautiful quote. Uh, You've probably heard some of it before about religion as the opium of the people. But among other things, he says that that we have a condition that requires illusions. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I may not agree with everything Karl Marx says, but this little piece is stunning and how clear it is. The religious institutions typically tell us to live under a condition that requires illusions. And the illusion is, is that we have to pretend to be good in order to get God. To like us or love us or forgive us or give us grace. And I don't think it's true. So you got to keep that in mind. And you got to remember where we left off last time. I was saying something unbelievably eloquent and probably life changing. Actually, I'll just copy and paste where we left off and we'll jump right back into it. And this is a podcast about us humans living in the middle of the beauty of all of this texture here. Cindy Wingbrand.
1: I love, I love that you use the word beauty all the time. I think we in the kind of indoctrination of, of my childhood faith, it was always about what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. We didn't talk too much about what's beautiful and what's not beautiful. Um, I think that that might be a better way to decide how we live our lives individually and communally. What's beautiful. You know, that's, that's a better question to ask sometimes than what's right, because sometimes what may be the right thing to do is not, isn't, is not going to make a beautiful life. (laughs) Um, And I think I think the reason it's hard to ask that question instead of the right and wrong question is because what's beautiful to one person is different from what's beautiful to another. And so we can't as easily impose that on other people. We can't control a group of people very easily. If we ask the question, what is beautiful? Because it's subjective. Um, And we're so afraid of chaos. Brian McLaren says fundamentalists fear chaos more than anything else. And I think that's really cool. I think that's really true. And I think as unfundamentalists, which is the term that I use, um, we have to embrace chaos. And we have to not embrace chaos, but not not be afraid and not feel like chaos will lead to um, something bad but that sometimes chaos leads to what is beautiful. Um, Nobody embodies this more than children, right? When you talk about chaos and vulnerability, really children are such a good uh, representation of both of those things. They are chaotic, they are volatile, in fact, um, because they're still developing their um, ability to regulate themselves. Um, and they're also extremely vulnerable, just by nature of being being children. Um, so there's so much to learn from our children. Um, and then I was also thinking, I don't know if you mind me mentioning this, but before we started recording, you shared your progressing views on LGBTQ issues, and and it it reminds me of how much we fear that that chaos. And I think that queer faith and queer people because they see their sexuality as so fluid and non-binary, that that's so scary to religious structures. They're not able to contain that multitude of of being. And I, I think that that's why this is such a sensitive topic for many religious institutions. They can't Um, If they can't box people in, they can't control people, and they can't maintain their status quo. And so anybody who kind of veers outside of that has to be taken care of. And for you and for me, too, it means that you have to go.
0: The dogmatic religious systems in the West, they just can't live in the gray. They have to make it black and white to define as specifically as they can, because at some level, they've decided that being in the gray is wrong immoral, out, and separate from God. And if you don't believe me, just start asking some questions about, well, let's just say sexuality. Sooner or later, the religious institution will tell you that you're wrong because, and they're not bad people for doing this. They're well-intentioned people, but at some level, they've decided that the Bible is a rule book rather than a love story, as Dr. Moore references. And once we've decided that we have the ability and the right and the authority to say what's right and wrong definitively, well, then we can use that power to keep some people out. And then we can guilt and shame people. Of course, we don't even have to do it to them because all of us are so good at feeling it ourselves. Living in the tohu vavohu, the life and the anti-life, the promise and the chaos, that is the texture, can be overwhelming. Overwhelming and we want to be accepted we want to be good so we're worthy of being accepted and so we pretend but of course it's not who we really are and so then shame takes hold
1: i think the thing that i'm learning about shame is that is that it's not it's very much the way your body responds to toxic doctrines or toxic environments And it's not a cognitive and academic exercise. Um, And so that's why a lot of people who have maybe deconstructed, like they know cognitively that they don't believe this anymore, that they've changed their minds, but they still feel and they still react um, in fear and in guilt and in a lot of um, self-deprecation in the worst way. Um, so you quickly jump from, oh, you don't like what I said to, I am bad, right? That leap is, is shame speaking. Um, and so the, yeah, I think what I really want for people is to take care of their bodies right now, because I think that there's been a lot of work done on, um, academic and cognitive deconstruction, but we haven't taken the time and the care for our bodies as much. And I think that that's the language that shame um, speaks. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people that are more expert at this than I am. But just from the conversations that I've had with people on my podcast and learning about religious trauma, just a little pitch for my own podcast I've been running a series on parenting after religious trauma. And uh, my co-host is a therapist who specializes in religious trauma. So uh, almost everything I'm saying, I've learned from him. Um, Brian Peck at Religious Trauma Institute. So yeah, I'm just kind of trying to think about how to talk about these things that for those of us who have faith shifted, who have religious trauma, and how we can heal from some of that toxicity. Uh, is to really care for our bodies, to listen to our own bodies, to let, to to help it feel safe again. <laughs> I think if we feel safe, then we don't have shame, right? I think shame is a response to unsafety, a response to somebody's going to control me, somebody's going to make me do something I don't want to do, somebody's going to make me feel bad. I mean, the original sin doctrine is so damaging to children and to all of us because, yeah, it sets us up in life in a way where we can't trust ourselves. We're unsafe. We have to, we have to earn our love. It's so weird because growing up, I was always taught that God's love was unconditional, but that's really um, dissonant from its doctrine.
0: Dr. James Allison has so much good theology. And much of it has been worked out from the perspective of being gay. And I think gay people pursuing Jesus have a really beautiful lens by which to interpret the movement of God reaching out to them because they've been cast out so often. They've been left out. They've they've been looked down upon. They've been the recipient of so much guilt and shame from all kinds of people, but most especially the religious people, that it seems to me that God is with them in a very unique, kind of a way and so I love hearing him talk he's been a big influence on my life
2: yeah if if people find themselves ashamed that they they can't psychologically get with the with the new description of what is good then their shame will turn into a a a self-justifying violence Uh, I think that's one of the realities that we're living with uh, at the moment very much um as if you like previously unacceptable emotions flourish and one of the reasons that the previously unacceptable emotions flourish was that so many cultural changes had been done apparently by law (laughs) uh, without people working through what they meant psychologically and people were actually happy to have them done by law uh in one sense because that's a way of exteriorizing the issue and leaving it not to be worked through. (laughs) Um, But then when actually have to find yourself working through it, the shame uh, and the the resentment comes through. Um, And I I suspect that a good deal of what was happening uh, in the reaction to uh, uh, the Obama presidency Or was that um, the beginning of the coming out of the emotions of things that hadn't been dealt with earlier? Um, And I suspect also that it's why you get strange outbursts of homophobia from people who feel that they've been somehow left behind in their ability to, uh, to cope with something. Um, it's not because they're any more or less modern or or even in many cases more or less gay than anybody else (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm.
2: it's because they haven't been given the tools with which to align what has changed exteriorly with their own feelings and psychology their own pattern of desire and I think that we, we respond to that with shame, I certainly do right I'm constantly so feeling shame that I that my feelings are not up to what what they should be.
0: <laughs> so when you said uh, morality by uh, by the law, I can't remember the phrase by, by
2: exterior decree. Yeah, by yeah. by you know by by the law. I don't mean just the religious law. Uh, right. I mean the the religious effect of the civil law.
0: <laughs> Is it you that used the phrase uh, morality by story?
2: I, I don't know, and I, I'm not sure it is me because I try to avoid morality okay. as far uh, with uh, uh, as far as I can. Uh, the um, yeah, I think morality is by and large a, a bad thing to be avoided at all costs. Um, mm-hmm. Learning how to be good is usually a matter of uh, avoiding the traps of morality. Right. <laughs> how are squabbles about goodness? usually coming from shame, um, how powerful they are. Yeah. And it's, it's really odd, given that um, the whole tenor, and I'm talking here to a Protestant, the whole tenor of the Protestant Reformation was justification by faith through grace. And that means no need to be good no need to justify yourself (laughs) and of course it's quite right any good you do should be the result of being loved rather than so as to prove that you are loved or so as to get love (laughs) Um, but it means allowing yourself to be loved as you are which means as you know being vulnerable and all those things which you uh which you describe it takes intentionality and
0: courage to avoid the traps of morality as james said so it takes courage and trust, trusting others and letting them trust you, which is to say you're going to get hurt and they're going to get hurt. And this is a terrible way to start a podcast, by the way, absolutely terrible way to grow a church because very few people, if any, are out looking for a new church so they can be vulnerable and potentially get hurt. And yet it just might be the answer to an ongoing series of questions that will help us to get undone. And I do think we need to be undone so that we can be remade. When we take the time to name things within the texture, to name our fears, we usually find that it's throbbing and pulsating around the things that matter the most about being human, which is our interconnectedness, our need for one another, our vulnerability. And we're never going to get that if we can't stop our addiction to pretending. I've read and listened quite a bit to Jordan Peterson in the last year or so. There's a lot of good things he has to say. He definitely preaches and teaches a self-sufficiency, which is good as far as it goes. I mean, it's good to be able to take initiative, ownership of your own problems, to be resourceful, etc. If those are the problems you're trying to solve. I have a feeling that for most of us, most of the time it's other problems we're attempting to solve. For example, if we're attempting to solve a fear of not measuring up, or if we're afraid of what will happen if people see who we really are and then reject us, well, in that case, self-sufficiency really becomes about the fear of abandonment. Because if I'm self-sufficient, I don't need others. Therefore, I don't care if others reject me. When we connect with our fear, it usually points us to what matters most about being human, which is our interconnectedness, our need for one another. But the problem with that is, It leaves us feeling so vulnerable. My take on all this vulnerability stuff is that we've created, well, we've created a lot of different institutions to help us cope, not the least of which is our religious institutions. I know the larger religious movement out of which I come from basically told me in so many words that the way to deal with all this essentially revolved around my behavior, that I had to be good. And of course, then we always define good based on what we think is good, and then we make up a set of rules. And then we tell ourselves, if we break the rules, then we're bad and God is upset. And the larger evangelical religious movement throughout the world definitely told us that this is what Genesis is about. It's about Adam and Eve breaking rules, which upset God. And ultimately, we have to get god to be happy and of course that's the point of jesus he comes to get god's attention because if it was just on us it would be bad god doesn't really like us god really likes his son and my response to that is really you're just perpetuating the condition that requires illusions first of all i don't think there's a list long enough to cover all the rules and even if there was we certainly wouldn't be able to have perfect performance And even if there was a list and we did achieve perfection, we'd ultimately wind up growing arrogant and calling ourselves good and others bad, which, I hope you see the logic of that, it would ensure that we wound up getting kicked off the list, because then we'd be arrogant, which has to be on the list, right? I agree with James Allison. We don't have to be good. That's not the point. Being good is just a cover-up for the fact that we're unsure of whether or not we're worthy of love anyhow. Being good is just a way to define who's in and who's out, because if we're good, then we get to point our fingers at others and say, oh, you're bad. And none of this proves anything other than the fact that we need bad people. It demonstrates that we're not putting our trust in God. We're putting our trust in the performance or the lack of performance in other people. We need them to be bad so we can call ourselves good. (laughs) I don't know why I'm laughing. Probably because it's so absurd. Oh, God help us. I don't think the Genesis story is about good people and bad people. I don't think it's about breaking rules, though certainly rules are involved at some level. I really think it's about humanity and life, which is Adam and Eve in Hebrew. Humanity and life being overwhelmed with the uncertainty of the texture, and them choosing to take things into their own hands rather than to trust God. It's emblematic of all of us. This is our basic problem. We want to conquer the uncertainty instead of live in and celebrate the uncertainty. We run from the texture. We call it bad. And then we make up lists of rules to keep in order to hide behind so that we can stay away from the existential fear of not being sure. But all the while, I mean, we can suppress all we want, but the fear grows inside of us. And you might say, well, fear's not growing inside of me. And yet, what happens if someone suggests something different than what is to be held true within your own group ideology? What happens is you castigate them, you kick them out. You, energized by your fear, will throw them out as far as you can. And if you need some examples, I can give you a few. So this piece right here, this is the fulcrum of this episode and so much of the work that I do now. I wanna say that we're just human and uncertainty is hard baked into our existence. We're a part of the tohu vavohu and it's a part of us. Potential, chaos, life, and anti-life. It's woven deeply inside of us. We make good choices And we make bad choices. But, I mean, even saying that, that's slippery because we can make quote-unquote good choices and still be doing it out of a heart of fear. And in that case, overall, it becomes a bad choice. It gets complex and pretty absurd. I mean, just watch the show The Good Place with Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. You'll see the complexity of it all. I find that show to be really interesting. I really enjoyed the first three seasons, though I don't recommend any shows because if you watch the show now and I've recommended it and there's bad language or something, you're going to think that I'm, you know, a deviant or something like that. And we can't have that. So anyhow, the first three seasons, I thought the fourth season, they really could have gone a different direction, but they didn't. Anyhow, that's for another time and place. And what am I, a television critic? No, of course not. The point here is the church and the religious institutions, they don't always know what's right. In my opinion, in my experience, I'd say about half the time, the church actually gets in the way. I think it's 50-50. Because religious people are the people who show up to church and run the church. And religious people are often the ones motivated out of fear Something is wrong here. So if I haven't already, I'm drawing a line in the sand. I reject the second of the four quote-unquote spiritual laws that American Christianity has built its house upon. I mean, I probably reject all of them, but we don't have time for all of it right now. There's just the second one. The second one says that sin has separated us from God. I want people to know that God isn't separate from you when you sin. First of all, Where could love even go to be separate from you? Doesn't work like that. Secondly, I don't think it's biblical. Thirdly, we don't even have a shared definition of what constitutes sin. So why do we speak for God? I mean, we we think we have a shared definition until someone disagrees with us. And then what do we do? Well, we go off and we start a new group that does agree with us. And it's why, with respect to the Protestant movement, it's why we have over 30,000 different Protestant churches and denominations and associations. Honestly, it's kind of a joke, isn't it? It's almost one big exercise in missing the point. And you might say, well, what is the point? Is there one point? I mean, I suppose if there's one point, it has to be about love. It has to be that, look, we're just in the middle of a love story It's not a story where everything was perfect and then we screwed it up and made God mad, but Jesus came and fixed it, and now we have no more uncertainty. I mean, That's not love. That's just trying to play it safe. Love isn't safe. I'll never forget the first time I met my daughter. It was, of course, in the birthing room. And they cleaned her up and put her in the little, you know, baby oven thing. I walked across the room. I remember her large dark, seemingly unblinking eyes staring at me. And as I took those few steps across the room, I felt like something was breaking inside of me. I remember having the the feeling, I don't know if I said it exactly like this, but basically the feeling of, oh man, the whole rest of my life just got reordered. Because this little thing, who i had never met up until this moment, generated so much love inside of me that it exposed my weakness i felt like i was in trouble like i was losing something maybe theologian amy winehouse says it best in her song love is a losing game and if i had the permission i'd play the winehouse song right now but i don't so you'll just have to look it up later it's a beautiful song And Jesus shows us about love and it being a losing game as well. He shows us about all this vulnerability. When he experiences forsakenness, maybe he's letting us know it's the path all of us will have to go down. Maybe all of us will need to be forsaken by our God so that we can be freed up to experience love itself. Peter
3: Rollins has something to say about this. And then we realize that the one is divided within itself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The moment of the crucifixion. And in that moment, we then are freed from trying to, uh, basically we're freed from the idea that God is an object that we love. And we then enter into the space where God is the depth dimension that is found in the act of love itself. So this is a very, and that's called the collective of the Holy Ghost. So, and it's called the death of God, of course, right? The death of God, the, the the birth of the community of the Holy Ghost. This is the community that is able to embrace lack and doubt and ambiguity, and where God is found in love itself. So, in my work, especially my last book, is is all about showing that the movement of Christianity is from the idea that God is an object that you love to to God can be the, the name of the depth I mentioned in the act of love itself. In other words, you can't love God. You can only love. <laughs> and in love, um, that, that's where we enter into the depth of truth. You
0: can't love God. You can only love. And love invites us again and again back into the texture. You don't have to pretend. We need to abandon the condition that requires illusions. We don't need illusions. God is with us. And if he's with us, what's going to be against us so just be yourself be human that's what the son of god did if it's good enough for him don't you think it's good enough for you Thanks for being with me on the intellectual light web here and thinking through these things with me. I hope you're doing well in the middle of all of this coronavirus stuff. Uh, There's a lot of anxiety out there. I'm praying that the peace of God, which I do believe transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. All right, if you like this episode or any of the episodes, I invite you to share it with a friend. Star it, review it, like it. Um, I should also mention you can find me online. Jonathan Foster Author is my Facebook page. At Jonathan underscore Foster is my Twitter. I mean, it would have been cool to have had the same handle on all the different social media stuff, but that would have been way too easy, right? And it would have required a lot of foresight on my part several years ago to lock all those down. Clearly, I don't have a lot of foresight, and so we're here now. But you can also find me on Amazon. I got a few books that I hope will help you if you can't afford any of that stuff. You know what? Just track me down. I'll figure out a way to get it to you, and you can pay me later if you want, or you can have it for free. It's all good. Peace, everyone.